This morning I'm starting a new sermon series that will lead us up to Easter, and we will be looking at some of the parables of Jesus Christ, particularly those parables we find in the latter half of the Gospel of Matthew. That Matthew includes a number of parables, many of which are unique to his gospel, that the other gospel writers chose to include other teachings and adventures of Jesus, whereas Matthew gives us some of these parables. And a lot of them point us to the judgment of God, the judgment of God. And so we'll be thinking a lot about God's judgment and how he views us and the world through these parables between now and Easter. And so this morning, our first parable we're looking at is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. It is the parables, parable of the laborers in the vineyard. So Matthew 20, 1 through 16, it is on page 980 in your pew Bibles. Jesus has just been talking with the rich young man or the rich young ruler, depending on the gospel version. He has spoken to his disciples, and so he has gathered his broader group of disciples, not just the 12, but the larger collection of followers around him as he teaches them this parable. So hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Amen. 
Let us pray. Well, Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who has recorded for us your revelation, that you sent Jesus into the world to speak with such power and wisdom that his words convict today just as much as they did in that day. And so, Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would you work today and let us to hear your word and may it accomplish what it is meant to accomplish. Lord, use me in spite of my sin and my weakness to proclaim your word. May it be your words. And give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and to understand and to trust your word that we would be shaped and changed by your word for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Considering this parable and how it deals with judgment and the idea of fairness and generosity, I, I want us to think through a big question today, is that, and that is that knowing how different all of us are as Christ's disciples throughout the ages and around the world, are we able to rest in God's fairness and also rejoice in His generosity? Can we rest in the fact that God is going to be fair to all and rejoice in the fact that he is generous where he chooses to be? So as we look at our parable, it's very important for us to understand what's happening here. And so first, we're going to look at how this parable reveals the kingdom of God. Jesus' very first words in this parable are, the kingdom of God is like blank. And so he's teaching us something, not just telling us a true story about some guy who owned a vineyard and paid people weirdly. He is pointing us to something about God. And then we need to consider how, how we react to that. Because it is a different kingdom, a foreign kingdom to the ways of this world. So how do we have trouble adjusting? In the same way that if you were to go to a foreign country, if you were to hop on a plane and go to India today and start walking around, you'd probably be like, man, things are different here. And so in the kingdom of God, things are very different from the things of the world. And so how do we react to that? But it's not just our reaction. We are called to be citizens of this kingdom. We not only are getting called to India, we are being told that when we come back to start living like we were living in India, in this world. How do we live according to this kingdom as opposed to the kingdom of the world so first, what does he compare the kingdom to? He compares the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, we use those interchangeably, to the master in the story. And so the landowner reflects God and his economy in the kingdom. Now that does not mean that we should uh, throw away all of our basic economics classes that we teach kids and students and we should replace them with this kind of economy. This is not what God wants us necessarily to do. Rather, it's showing us how God operates. And so, how does God operate? First, we see that God is fair. God is a fair and just God. That he hires workers for a day of work, and he pays them a fair wage for that day of work. That a denarius was the day's wages. It pretty much, that's what the coin stands for, one day's wages. Keep in mind that these workers are dependent on someone hiring them. They had no guarantee that morning of getting a wage, as we'll see from the others who had to wait around. But they show up, they meet this guy, and they come to an agreement that we have a fair wage and we will work for it. And guess what? At the end of the day, they receive it. God is fair. 
Note also that the workers hired at the third hour, that's roughly 9 a.m. as opposed to 6 a.m. at dawn for the first ones, the master tells them, come into my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. In other words, whatever is fair, I will pay you. And they are fairly paid. That no one will be taken advantage of, that all the workers will expect fairness. Not only that, but the master pays them at the end of the day at evening. That the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 24.15 said that if you were hiring workers like this, you had to pay them that evening and not hold on to their wages till the next day. Because these workers are not guaranteed a steady job. They need to know they can take this home and provide for their family. The master does that. They all leave that day with their payment. And so we see the master is a just employer who ensures that all of his employees receive fair treatment, and he represents God. That tells us that God is a judge and a holy God who shows fairness to all. He will ensure that all people receive fairness. In ancient times, the pagan gods were unpredictable and impulsive, swinging from overly pleased and excited to vindictive and angry. And you never knew what they were going to be. Usually it depended on the weather. So right now, they'd be happy, but in two hours, they're going to be really mad. Just that's kind of how it goes, okay? God's not like that. God does not just swing from pendulum to pendulum swing. God is fair, If he says he is going to do something, he will do it, and he will do it rightly. And so this parable reveals that God is fair, but it also reveals that he is abundantly generous, that this master has work for plenty of people, and clearly he has the funds to compensate all of these workers. He doesn't say, hey guys, can you wait till the morning? I didn't realize uh, I'd have so many workers here. Let me go to the bank and get the money. He doesn't say that. He pays them all. His vineyard is no small patch of land. The workers do not need to fear that they will be set to busy work all day or have to stand around and not get anything done. There is much to do, and the master is continually searching for more and more laborers for his vineyard, and he knows he's going to have to pay them all, and he does. Now, it may strike us as odd that this master keeps going to the marketplace to get more visitors. It makes us wonder if Jesus is telling us that God is a really poor planner. It's like, oh man, I didn't, I didn't know I would need so many people today. And I don't think that's exactly what God is doing here or what Jesus is teaching us. Rather, it seems there are kind of two things that are at play. One is that during the harvest of grapes, it was very important to harvest the crop at just the right ripeness that depending on weather conditions, that moment of perfect ripeness that gets you the best vintage of grapes would be very important. Like, we got to get them all now. And especially if that day of harvest was the day before the Sabbath. So you knew, well, we can't come tomorrow and do it. We got to get it done today. And so gathering as many people as you can quick before sundown, let's harvest as many grapes as we can get. And so perhaps that's what's going on. And perhaps also, the master has compassion on those who are idle. That word for idle often has negative connotations in scriptures, meaning lazy. But in this setting, what else were those folks supposed to do? They had gone to the market. They had likely been there. 
He says, why have you been standing around all day? I mean, they can't just show up and say, hire me, pay me. They are dependent upon someone else. And if they are not hired, they will return home to their families with nothing. Perhaps the master sought to hire as many people as he could because he knew behind every idle worker there would be a hungry family. After all, those men receive a full day's wage for only a few hours of work. And so this parable shows us that God is abundantly generous. He is fair, but he is also abundantly generous. And so if that's what's revealing to us about God, we see that there's a reaction to this combination of fairness and generosity. And Jesus puts that reaction in the parable for us, assuming how we will react. And I think Jesus knows us pretty well. And so he's got the reaction right. The workers hired at dawn saw those lazy bums who just arrived at 5 o'clock putting in one hour of work. They hardly even got dressed and ready. You know, they, they didn't seem to do all that much. And they get their payment first. And they saw the foreman pass them a denarius. And their eyes lit up. What? And so they say, Jesus tells us that when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. Why on earth would those workers be so upset to grumble? They felt entitled to the master's generosity. They wrongly believed that generosity must be proportionately extended. That if you're going to be generous to them, you need to be similarly generous to us. After all, we worked all day, and it was hot, really hot. And these guys showed up after the sun was already starting to set. It wasn't hot. They weren't sweating and tired. They got done with the day, and they didn't have to put their clothes in the wash. Their complaint can be summed up in this, that you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And so the workers feel that their master has violated the principles of fairness by not appropriately valuing their work. That unequal work resulted in equal pay. And that didn't sit right with them. And so the master has to help them. He answers their objection, and he does it kindly. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. The master calls these ungrateful workers friend, and he proceeds to explain his fairness that generosity does not nullify fairness. Generosity is always in addition to fairness. Generosity is a free choice. That's what the master says. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? The, the master is not stupid. 
he, he gets why they're upset. He can understand why they're upset. But he kindly explains to them, essentially, this is really none of your business, the fact that I was generous to them. And if anyone has any right to complain, it's not you, it's me. Who is having to pay a whole lot for not a lot of work? So if it's on me, then it's my choice whether or not I want to do it. One of the more famous examples of this idea in the Bible is Jonah. From our Old Testament reading that Jonah was an Israelite prophet, someone who knew God, who knew God's law and sought to follow him. And he was commanded to bring the word of God to the enemies of God, to the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And he brought that message unwillingly that God will judge you if you do not repent. He probably like fine printed the if you do not repent because he didn't want them to repent. So God will judge you if you will not repent. Something like that is my guess if I had to interpret Jonah. See, Jonah didn't want to bring this message because the Assyrians were not worthy of receiving that word. What have they done to deserve it? They're the bad guys in the story. God's word is for God's faithful people. He hated the generosity of God. It's really hard to read that uh, chapter 4, verse 2, where Jonah is complaining about my steadfast and merciful and forgiving God. Like, how can you even say that in an angry tone? And yet he does. Jonah explained that he did not want this compassion. And yet it was God's choice. God told him, I can be generous to who I want to be generous to compassionate to who I want to be compassionate to. I don't really have to ask your opinion, Jonah. Jonah's example helps us to see the significance of this parable because the workers in this parable are grumbling about one day's wages. A hundred bucks, maybe a little more adjusting for inflation. That's what they're angry about. Jonah was angry about something far more. In Jonah's instance, the Assyrians were receiving forgiveness. In some cases, salvation and eternal life was given to the enemies of God's people who had waged war against them. God was offering them the very same thing he had given his own people, essentially making equal the Israelites, and the Ninevites. No wonder Jonah grumbled. He struggled to grasp the values of the kingdom of God. Like Jonah, we can struggle with these kingdom values too because we are so used to the way our world works and we feel like our hard work should be rewarded. We look at our home, our possessions, our retirement savings, our education, and we see the fruit of our labors. We can look at our years in Sunday school classes, our daily prayers, our church involvement, and feel like, we've contributed a lot to this Jesus thing. Isn't it fair for us to receive some credit for having done so much? Yeah, but who made it all possible? Who made it all possible? Because if we remember at the beginning of the story, before dawn... Nobody was hired yet. 
all of the men were in the exact same position, standing, just might get to work today, just waiting around, hoping someone would hire them. So then how do we not make the same mistake that Jonah made? The mistake that the dawn workers made. In other words, how do we live in the kingdom of God, embracing God's values while we still live in this world? Well, I want to suggest three applications for us to, to blend this idea of generosity and fairness in what we see the master doing. First, we need to remember that we are recipients of God's generosity. A day's work can feel quite long, especially if you're out in the sun working through the heat of the day. So no wonder the earliest workers forgot how fully dependent they were on someone hiring them. It had been 12 hours. They had built up in their minds this idea of, look at how much I've done to deserve this. If they can forget, how much more likely are Christians to forget why we are saved when it has been years? Many of us have been following Jesus since before we can remember. This was just one day that they had forgotten. Many of us have been following Jesus routinely, worshiping every Sunday like we're picking clusters of grapes, doing the same thing over and over and over and over and feeling like this means something, doesn't it? And we can forget that it's God grace that saves, God's grace that saves us and not our works. Because when we forget, we can be tempted to cry out, that's not fair. When we are confronted with examples of God's generosity, we can cry out, that's not fair. And so let us remember that we are saved by grace and not our works. See, there are many differences among us and among Christians around the world in terms of when we came to believe in Jesus. Some of us came to believe at a point where we don't remember ever not believing. Others of us came to believe much later in life. Those differences do not make us unequal they simply show the diversity of who we are in the kingdom of God. And we are all in the kingdom for one reason, and that is the grace, the generosity of Jesus Christ. So we need to remember that we are recipients of God's generosity. Second, we should rejoice in God's generosity towards latecomers. I'm preparing to uh, go on a flight in another week or two, and there's always that temptation to arrive at the airport two hours early with your precisely packed carry-on bags to sit very close to where they line up for the door so that at the precise moment, you can get in line. And you can stand there and like, yeah. And then that guy who clearly ran through security, huffing and puffing, comes in, and they call him in, and he's like, oh, yes, sir, you can board. And they go right in front of you. And you're feeling like, what about me? I put in so much effort. Does it not matter? That can happen for Christians. For longtime Christians who can look down on folks who just started coming to church. Who don't even know where the books of the Bible are without looking at the, Ten Command without looking at the table of contents. Who have been gone from the church for a long time, and we look at them like, man, I was here all the time, you weren't. Do we rejoice to see those people coming to know the Jesus that we have known? 
Or do we feel like they are butting in on some semi-exclusive relationship that we have? Are we generous towards latecomers? I want you to imagine a Christian who has grown up in the Middle East from a Muslim family, and they came to believe in Jesus Christ. This Christian is then cast out of their family, shunned by their community, persecuted to the point of enduring physical harm for their faith. And compare that Christian to an American who lived a comfortable life, doing whatever it is he wanted, until on his deathbed, someone came and shared with him Jesus. And he put his faith in Jesus and was saved. How might that persecuted Christian feel towards that latecomer? Would they not be tempted to begrudge that generosity saying, look at how much I went through and you had it easy? Or can they rejoice in the generosity of God? Let us rejoice in God's generosity to those who are latecomers. Third, We should share in God's 11th hour hope. His 11th hour hope of hiring more workers. And we can think of that in three different ways. We can think about those people hired at the 11th hour because they didn't seem all that valuable. That when you look at all the workers and line them up, you're like, okay, well, I'm taking you and you can, someone else can get you. And by the 11th hour, you're left with those unpromising workers. Who do we look to hire Who do we look to share the gospel with and invite into the church family? Those who seem to have a lot to offer? Young families? Wealthy families? Gifted people? Connected people? Or do we seek out those who seem to have less to offer according to the world? People who've been in prison or are in prison. The elderly who are shut in or in nursing homes. People who have lived a very sinful past and are having difficulty leaving that behind. Do we share hope with those 11th hour people? We can also think of the 11th hour in terms of people's lives. Do we know our master's generosity? Do we share the hope for his generosity for people in salvation to their dying day? Or do we give up early? Do we not go back to people at the 11th hour? Do we know that our master is generous and he has the power to save people that we might consider beyond hope, that the clock has already ticked on them and it has passed? Do we share that 11th hour hope? We can also think of the 11th hour in terms of Christ's return. Do we believe that the world is still ripe for the harvest? Do we see the opponents of Christianity and the skeptics as folks who are waiting in the marketplace for an invitation to receive the generosity of God? Do we know that the church does not have an occupancy limit, even though this building does? Do we know that Jesus' blood has not been diluted over the years and it doesn't have as much power to save that it is still strong today? Do we know that God has abundant resources to call more and more laborers into the vineyard with us? So do we share our master's desire to call more and more people in with us? Our New Testament reading about the thief on the cross weaves all of these threads together. 
because the thief had very little to offer. I mean, he was about to die. He didn't put in the time like Peter, John, and yet in his dying moments, he trusted in Jesus. And in his dying moments, he received the reward that all Christians receive. He is with Jesus in paradise. He is with Jesus in heaven. He received the gift of eternal life that any of the disciples received, that pastors receive, that church leaders receive, that folks who've been going to church their whole lives received. He received the same gift out of God's generosity. Remember that we are saved by the same generosity. The song we sang just a moment ago was singing about the thief. We are as vile as he, but for the blood of Jesus Christ. Because we are not saved by our church attendance. We are not saved by our good behavior, our charitable giving, our volunteer hours. We are saved because we have a gracious and generous God in Jesus Christ. And so those of you who came to know Jesus from a very early age rejoice that you have been given hours to work in the field and serve God more. Those of you who have come to God later in life know that you are on equal standing with those who have been here a long time. You are not some second-class Christian because you didn't grow up in the church. And together... Let us pray for the Holy Spirit to send us forth on the task of calling more and more laborers into the vineyard, for it is ripe for harvest. Amen. Let us pray. O merciful God, we thank you that you have called us in your generosity, that you are fair, and that no one will receive less than they deserve. But God, we are so thankful that we do not get what we deserve, for what we deserve is your wrath. We thank you for the generosity and grace of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would give us that passion to share the good news of Jesus with others until the 11th hour and beyond, until you return, O Jesus, and we get to be with you in paradise. Amen.